we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. You know, the less we eat, the less violence is being done, and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats, and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to the Animal Voices Radio Show, Western Canada's only radio program on animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM Co-op Radio CFRO on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Today is Friday, November the 12th, 2021. I am your host, Allison Cole, and I am joined here again by my co-host, Jen Dobell. Hello. Hey, Jen, welcome to the show. As a community radio station with a mandate to give voice to grassroots organizations working for social justice issues, we try to prioritize bringing to the airwaves the messages from our community in animal rescue issues, for example. We have a number of rescue groups in animal sanctuaries here in Metro Vancouver, and they are often in dire need of resources to keep their good work going. One of these charities is Rabbitats, a local group who we have featured on the show before, who run a rabbit sanctuary and shelter in Richmond and Surrey and rescue abandoned and feral rabbits, which can be quite a problem in urban cities where parents buy Easter bunnies for their children and then dump them in a park after a month or so to have them fend for themselves. Not good. Unfortunately, that's where Rabbitats comes in to help the animals, or fortunately, I should say. Deanna Ham is the Richmond Sanctuary and Shelter Manager, and now is an urgent time where the shelter is greatly in need of volunteers to help the bunnies by doing daily bunny tasks for their well-being. We'll be interviewing Deanna to learn more about the work of the shelter and how you, our listeners, can get involved to help rabbits and even foster and adopt if you want to rescue animals yourselves. Then, our feature interview has been long anticipated. And finally, we are here, local Vancouver filmmaker Gary Charbonneau, who you may know from the informative documentary expose, Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered covered has now taken his investigations in another direction and this time it's to bring light findings and knowledge on the truths behind medical testing on animals. This research all comes together to expose that medical testing on animals is not only irrelevant and negligent for its purposes for humans, but it is also both dangerous and ineffective. His new film is called The Medical Illusion and makes its premiere online on Zoom this Sunday, November the 14th, with special guest speakers at the end. And I can personally say that this film is not to be missed. We'll be interviewing Gary later in the show to tell us more about the discoveries he has exposed in his new and groundbreaking film. That interview is coming up in 31 minutes, so please do stay tuned. Over to you, Jen. So today I just want to talk about one of my favorite doctors to follow, and I know, Allison, you'll agree, Dr. Neil Bernard. Yes, we've had him on the show a few times before. Mm -hmm. Actually, he always gives an excellent interview. Yeah, 
So I'm obsessed with him, not only because I work in healthcare, but I'm also really interested in nutrition. And I know that there's a lack of nutrition education for most doctors. Well, I would say all doctors, but there are a few vegan doctors out there who are really making it their mission to put that knowledge out um, to the masses because they're not getting it from their own medical doctors. And so I frequently check out his website, which is the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And I was really happy with what I saw. I know we're all sick of COVID news, but this is something that I do want to talk about. So he recently recommended that the government of the District of Columbia should update its COVID-19 messaging to recommend that citizens shore up vaccine efficacy with a plant-based diet. That is one of the recommendations that Neil Bernard at the FACC, president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine will make when he testifies before the Council of the District of Columbia Committee on Health, um, and that was last week. Um, in his testimony, he references the COVID symptom study, which included more than half a million participants and found that people eating more fruits, vegetables, and plant-based foods in general had a 41% lower risk of severe COVID-19. Similarly, a recent study of healthcare workers in six countries revealed that those following a largely plant-based diet had a 73% lower odds of developing moderate to severe COVID-19 symptoms. That's quite interesting. I hadn't heard of that study. I, I just want to be clear to our listeners that yes, of course you can get COVID if you're vegan. We right. we totally know people who have. But for those actual facts from studies to come out, that is very interesting. It gives us another reason to go plant based in this day and age in 2021 when you know more we're seeing so many things now happening that we know, for example, that pandemics happen because of vast crowding and really poor conditions. That that in factory farm situations where animals can easily get infections because they're uh, they're super immune suppressed and they're very they're very susceptible to getting sick because mm-hmm. of those conditions. Just like if you would put a human in those conditions, I think that is uh, maybe part of the reason why we're seeing the plant based industry booming so much these days. I mean, I read articles and articles all the time suggesting that people are more interested ne- more now than ever than eating a veggie burger than say a beef burger that's good and yeah it's um it's it's quite uh, amazing that we actually have some some uh, studies scientific studies to back up that that um i mean there's so many reasons to go plant-based for health but in this in these crazy times right a lot of people yeah. don't know this but most pandemics that we've had are zoonotic in origin and that means yeah. that they're coming from animal sources and while in this case it's not pointing to our typical farm animals the past ones have we've had swine flu bird flu mad cow disease and we have to stop living this way not only for our environment but because of human health and on top of that antibiotics are becoming resistant now and and those aren't working and Dr. Michael Greger, another doctor that you and I both love and have had on the show a few times here, he's an epidemiologist. He's been talking about this for decades, not only the pandemic issue, but also um, antibiotic resistance. He says, you know, in the future, you you could die from a simple dental procedure if your antibiotics aren't working for you. And we've already seen people dying because antibiotics aren't working. Yes. And he actually made a speech about that for a documentary that I just saw recently. We covered it on the show. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Eating Our Way Into Extinction. It's um, it's narrated by Kate Winslet and mm-hmm. executive produced by her. It's completely based on scientific studies and about the environmental crisis and why we need to go plant based for the planet. And it the video that they had they had interviewed him and it and it showed this was done in 2019 mm-hmm. before before the pandemic came. He was warning us yeah. about pandemics from 
from foodborne um, origins, and that's right. And that eighty percent of antibiotics that are made by pharmaceutical companies are actually given to animals, and this is where the problem is, right. is and, coming from. And we're probably going to learn more about that when you watch the medical illusion, which we're going to have more on the show. Fantastic documentary. I've seen it. I'm really looking forward to it coming out. Right, and we have some news. Yes, we do. So this is really exciting. This is something that's been close to my heart because I went vegan because of attending a protest at the Vancouver Aquarium. The nonprofit conservation organization, the Whale Sanctuary Project, has officially opened its visitor and operations center in Sherbrooke, Nova Scotia, marking the beginning of its plan to open North America's first seaside sanctuary for whales rescued or retired from a life of captivity. The recent grand opening celebration hosted more than 100 people and several government officials, including Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia, Arthur LeBlanc. The planned 40-hectare sanctuary is expected to be built next year in a bay that's open to the North Atlantic Ocean near Port Hilford, Nova Scotia, a 20-minute drive from the visitor center. It will span about 50 football fields, which is approximately 300 times larger than the biggest captive whale tank in any marine park, and is designed to accommodate up to eight whales. The sanctuary will allow whales to live out their lives in their natural habitat with enough room to engage in their natural behaviors, all but in a protected area that is enclosed with underwater nets. Because captive whales have spent their lives in a tank, they cannot return to the ocean due to their lack of survival skills. The sanctuary will keep them safe and well protected from the rough water, and a hydrodynamic study has shown that the bay is regularly flushed by currents and tides, so any buildup of whale waste will be washed away. And last year, the Whale Sanctuary Project announced plans to build the sanctuary following the passing of Canada's Ending the Captivity of Whales and Dolphins Act, which, Allison, you and I were both quite active on having that law changed, and we're very happy that that was successful. So that prohibits the wild capture of uh, captive the wild capture, captivity, and breeding of whales, dolphins, and porpoises, effectively ending the practice of exploiting cetaceans for entertainment. Under the law, which took more than three years to pass due to delays and obstructions, there are exceptions for rescue and rehab to ensure whales and dolphins can get aid if they need it and allows animal sanctuaries in Canada to care for cetaceans if it's in the animal's best interests. In other news, the CEO and founder of Impossible Foods, Patrick Brown, has stressed the importance of abandoning animal agriculture if we are to meet global net zero targets. The comments came at a COP26 conference, and here Brown called for further dramatic action despite pledges made by member countries. Despite multiple promises such as the Global Methane Pledge and plans to end deforestation, Brown strained that they fall short due to meaningfully, due to meaningfully mitigate the current climate crisis trajectory. Brown expressed, explained the difference between the emissions from fossil fuels and those caused by animal agriculture. While around a third of greenhouse gas emissions currently in the atmosphere are caused by such animal farming, they are completely reversible and much of it comes from deforestation caused by land clearing to make way for cattle farming. But thankfully, Brown says, if we restore this land, the CO2 emissions can be converted in, back into biomass. He told attendees, if we could phase out animal agriculture in the next 15 years, we would unlock negative emissions sufficient to create a 30-year pause. And, all, and through the end of the century, the negative emissions on animal agriculture land would offset about 68% of total GHGs. And that's if we do nothing about fossil fuel emissions. Brown claims that if we end animal agriculture, we will be able to turn back the clock environmentally to the year 2000, and Impossible Foods is the answer because he has the technology not only analog to meat, but to make animal products obsolete. This can also provide an opportunity for farmers to become climate heroes in ditching animal farming for plant-based foods, and it can be achieved in making the land richer for regrowing. 
Do we have time for one more news story? Yeah, we certainly do. And just on, um, yeah, one quick story. We've got one minute. Go ahead. So great news in the world of non-animal-based research, the theme of our show today. Research has have discovered that using tumor cells derived directly from breast cancer patients, an organoid model has been developed that replicates breast cancer characteristics and can be used to test personalized treatment options. And so this is what the documentary that we're talking about today is based on, is developing personalized medicine without using any animal testing methods. And it's more effective. Is that all for our That's news? That's it for news. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jen. So our first interview today is with Deanna Ham. She is the Richmond Sanctuary and Shelter Manager for Rabbits, our local 100% volunteer-run charitable organization whose mission it is to help abandoned and feral rabbits. You can listen to our previous interview with Sorel Campbell, fo- founder of Rabbitats at animalvoices.org. Deanna has been a volunteer with with Rabbitats almost from its inception, along with other volunteers, Stephanie and Nellie, who we also want to send a shout out to. She maintains the Richmond shelter and the care of all the colony and adoptable rabbits. Deanna lives and breathes rabbit rescue and is Rabbitats all-star rabbit trapper and bunny whisperer. The Richmond Rabbitats Sanctuary and Shelter is in urgent need of volunteers to help care for the bunnies, and Deanna is here today to speak about the work of the organization and to convey the vital need for the help of community in the Metro Vancouver area. Hello, Deanna, and welcome to the Animal Voices Show. Hi there, Allison. Nice to connect with you again. I'm wondering if you could start by telling us about how the sanctuary and shelter operates. I know it's 100% volunteer run. You yourself are a volunteer and you care for, for the animals every day from morning till night. So what do you do at the sanctuary and shelter and how many rabbits do you care for there? <laughs> well, my days are, are long uh, with so much work to do at any given time. Um, the Shelter is where all the rabbits come in to begin with. Uh, We assess them for medical needs. We hold them until we get them spayed and neutered. And then we move them along into either their sanctuary colonies or they become available for adoption. And we have currently over 250 rabbits on site. Uh, Some, you know, are still living in cages and uh, many are living in colony structures. And um, so, of course, my primary responsibility is to make sure that the daily needs of the rabbits are always met. Um, on top of that, I'm, uh, you know, coordinating the volunteers and uh, coordinating the veterinary care and coordinating the, su- uh, the supply and delivery of um, our, what we need to look after the rabbits, which is, you know, hay and food and uh, the ability to, you know, litter pellets. <laughs> all of those things. Um, and so personally, I have so many different tasks on my plate at any given time that the more volunteer help we have in order to uh, do the direct physical care of the rabbits, the more it frees up of my time to look after all these other aspects. At any given time, I've got a number of medical rabbits under my care, as well as the perfectly healthy rabbits who just need their daily, daily needs to be met. Um, it's, it's endless. <laughs> Sounds like you have a very, very full plate there. And I think you and all the other, um, you know, the other people who run Rabbitats for all the work you're doing there with this just tireless 
dedication to the animals. Can you describe for our listeners the kinds of situations that you rescue bunnies from when you work, uh, who that you then work to foster and adopt out? Um, yes. So uh, the, the larger number of rabbits under our care are the feral rabbits who will, you know, end up living their lives out in their colony structures uh, in safe environments that we provide for them. But then there's, there's yes, the adoptable rabbits. Um, so the feral rabbits are, you know, typically the ones born um, out there, not under human care. So uh, we, you know, we, we go out and we trap them and we bring them in. In terms of the other adoptable rabbits, um, there's, so sometimes uh, we bring in, too often we bring in uh, female rabbits who are already pregnant and we end up with uh, bunnies born under our care. Other times people ask us to take in their rabbits basically to surrender them to us because there's so few options of where they can rehome their rabbits. Uh, they all approach other shelters and rescues and be told that they're, they're full. Um, we're all full. <laughs> um, so that's another avenue. And then, of course, the people who um, decide that it's okay to just uh, abandon their, their pet rabbits and they will release them in outdoor situations. And then we end up having to spend the time and resources to go and rescue them from those situations. And quite often they have medical or injuries uh, at that point, um, which makes everything so much more difficult. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, again, it's a lot of work that you have on your hands there, basically because of human beings, uh, I guess their desire or the feel, feeling of having the right to take these animals in and then basically abandon them, right? So who's to come in but the animal rescuers? I'm wondering, you know, I want to know more about bunnies. I've always, you know, when you're a child, you see bunnies. I think we had, you know, maybe a pet rabbit in one of our classes in elementary school. I don't have a lot of other experience with rabbits, but I sure do see a lot of rescued bunnies on Facebook. And it really makes me interested to come out and volunteer one day which I really want to do but I'm wondering for our listeners can you tell us more about the personalities the lives and the physical and emotional needs for the well-being of bunnies okay so the first thing that we always have to keep in mind is that rabbits are actually prey animals and so that drives so many uh, things in their behavior and that um, much as they may love us and um, thrive under our care, there's always an underlying genetic uh, imperative for them to keep themselves safe. And so we need to keep that in mind in every aspect of our care of them. Um, rabbits are uh, can be absolutely uh, wonderful uh, pets under our care. They're curious and active. Um, we what I often tell people who want to um, take bunnies into their homes and their lives is that you need to keep in mind that they are reliant on us for every aspect of their daily lives, uh, uh, for their happiness mm -hmm. and their well-being. And so we need to provide them not only their basic needs uh, in terms of food and, and water and, uh, and a clean environment, but uh, to give them the ability to enjoy their lives as well. So we refer to that as enrichment. So, um, <clears throat> you know, they're just having a space to run around in 
is, mm-hmm. is uh, one of the very basic things so that they can actually get exercise. We all need exercise, um, but try to make it interesting and fun for them as well. And while we don't want to impose ourselves on them in the context of uh, picking them up and holding them and carrying them around, the very act of being picked up is actually terrifying for all rabbits, even even if they love us, um, you know, 95% of rabbits are, are terrified when they're picked up. Um, but once they love us and know us and trust us, then, you know, they, they quickly get over that and, and will, you know, re- totally respond to the love and affection that we want to share with them. But for the most part, uh, we should be trying to do that in on their level. So it's getting down onto the floor with them and allowing them to interact with us and come to us for their pets and cuddles and that kind of a thing. Wow. It it makes me want to adopt a bunny <laughs> as well, <laughs> which may be also in my future. I want to have many rescued animals who I can care for and and you know have a companionship um that it's just uh it's it's an amazing situation what you have there where actually you know I, well the thing is it's really sad that you do have these animals that are abandoned in the first place but if um you know if a bunny can be paired up with a human or some humans and they can provide each other the you know care and companionship that each wants then that's an amicable relationship so i'm wondering i'm wondering if you can tell us about what qualities or resources and humans should have who may want to introduce a rescued bunny into their life as you have the foster and adoption program as well okay so one of the first things to uh, keep in mind is that ultimately uh, most rabbits are um, healthier and happier if they have a rabbit companion uh, that they share their lives with. Um, no matter how much we love them and shower our affection on them, we're not a bunny. And bunnies do things together that, that we can't provide. So um, so if you're thinking about bringing rabbits into your life, um, hopefully it's a pair. Uh, we call them a bonded pair. They they actually choose their, their mates and uh, we try to give them the ability to do so. Um, there's the odd rabbit who is happy living uh, without a rabbit companion companion um, that we just find it very difficult to find someone that they choose to live with. Um, But uh, the thing is that we, um, and especially uh, many people have very busy lives and you, you, you still want to open your home up to, to these rabbit companions, but maybe you're very busy, you're away from home many hours. So that's another reason to bear in mind that it's uh, best if you can can have um, rabbits in pairs at least. And uh, what happens is that they tend to um, eat a better diet, they tend to exercise more, um, and they've got someone to cuddle with at night or, or other periods of the day where we're not available for their companionship. Um, it's not to say that rabbits can't live by themselves uh, without another rabbit, um, but uh, that's our, our desire. Um, so humans have to learn to be respectful pardon me, of rabbits and um, and their boundaries. That's the case with any living beings that share our lives, is that uh, we need to actually understand their, um, their true desires. And... Hmm... And so it, it goes beyond the basic uh, care and cleaning of their environment. Mm-hmm. Um... 
I'm not quite sure what else to say right now. <laughs> well, I think I think for sure there again, like I was saying, it's an amicable relationship where where you're living, you're uh, you know, both the bunnies and the humans are living in partnership with each other, right? And they have to. I, it seems that bunnies they like to cuddle. I mean, humans like to cuddle. It seems like that. Right. There's a yeah. It seems like there's um you know, there's a lot of potential there, but but definitely okay, so it's that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, so something I would add here, I guess, is that in the context of the foster and adoption is mm-hmm. that um, for many people, rabbits are, are a new idea because they're used to cats and dogs as being pets, but oh, what yeah. about rabbits? And so the thing is that we do have the foster to adopt option where you can, I guess you could call it test driving, having rabbits sharing your life mm-hmm. and, and see how the fit is. Um, and then sometimes people absolutely are determined not to adopt, but they really want to help and they'd really like to temporarily share their lives with rabbits. And so, um, we do have, uh, different needs for fostering rabbits for different amounts of times. Uh, sometimes it will be after their spay and neuter surgery, for instance, and they need a place to recuperate and, uh, for their hormones to uh, subside uh, before it's appropriate to start introducing them to other rabbits or introducing them into a colony. Um, and sometimes we uh, need people to assess the rabbits for us in terms of um, how happy they are living in, in a human home environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be viewed as socializing as well. So getting the bunnies uh, used to living with humans and, and then uh, the idea is that then they are uh, further along the road to being uh, ready for adoption uh, by someone else, for instance. All right. Uh, Deanna, can you please tell us about the volunteer structure that you usually have at Rabbitats, which we understand has been falling through lately due to summer student volunteers going back to school these past months. How are your volunteers uh, such an asset to keeping the shelter smoothly running and what kinds of tasks do they usually do? Okay, so the volunteers are everything. Uh, organizations like us can't exist with enough volunteer help. Um, ideally, I would have a, a regular schedule of volunteers on a daily basis where I can count on X number of volunteer hours, which allows me to allocate their time in such a way to make sure that all of the daily needs are being met. Um, not everyone is able to commit to those regular shifts. Um, which we we understand we're not quite as rigid with our volunteer um, requirements, I guess, as many organizations because we value every single hour from every single volunteer. So basically when people approach us about volunteering and they're asking for, you know, which days do I need more help, um, certainly there's there's days where I, I have a fewer number of volunteers and I have a greater need, but basically we try to be as accommodating to people's schedules as possible. Um, of course, COVID uh, over the past uh, you know, couple of years has, has uh, taken its toll on everyone's life structure and time availability. So um, uh, the desire is for people to make a regular commitment, uh, whether that's weekly, bi-weekly. I actually have a number of volunteers volunteers who come in more than once a week. Um, ideally, the minimum time here is two hours. I have some people who are here up to five hours. Um, but the bottom line is we need volunteers desperately and 
we are willing to work with whatever people have available. So I have one woman who um, she'll contact me um, in the morning and say, okay, I've got, you know, an hour and 40 minutes for you starting at this time. Is that okay? And I always say yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. We're we're almost out of time here. Can you quickly let our listeners know? I mean, I I really hope that this interview brings a lot of volunteers to you. What should our volunteers do to contact you to indicate their interest in volunteering? Um, well, it all starts with going to our website, rabbitats.org, and filling out our volunteer questionnaire. And then um, I guess that one of the things that we've learned is that we encourage people to be uh, persistent in trying to contact us. Um, because we're sort of operating without a full-time volunteer coordinator right now, um, people are um, sometimes uh, discouraged because they we're not getting back to them quickly. And we, we apologize for that. We uh, desperately need need to do that. Um, but yeah, be persistent and, um, and get our attention and uh, let's get you scheduled to come here. Um, and uh, so I guess the other thing is that, yes, um, looking after the rabbits uh, here certainly um, does involve a lot of hay. Hay is 80% of a rabbit's diet, but we do know that there's a lot of people with allergies. We have so many tasks here to do at any given time that we can work with people with allergies too. There's inside work, there's outside work, there's work without hay. Um, again, uh, we're able to accommodate anyone with the time available and any kind of restrictions they have on their ability to help. <laughs> Thank you, Deanna Ham, for joining us on the show today to tell us about your work at the Rabbitat Sanctuary and Shelter in Richmond and how our listeners can step in to do some much-needed volunteer work to help care for the bunnies. Remember, go to rabbitats.org to fill out the application for volunteering and to find out more, and there's info there in fostering and adopting. And Rabbitat's Fall Auction Fundraiser is on right now until this Sunday, November 14th, to place a bid on a large variety of of rabbit themed gifts and to help the shelter raise funds please visit facebook.com slash richmond rabbit rescue fundraiser thank you for all the work that you do deanna i hope that our interview will garner lots of volunteers to come your way and i'll be heading out there soon have a good day awesome thank you i look forward to meeting you in person thanks so much take care looking for ways to engage and educate your kids while schools are closed your kids can learn from home with SeaSmart's Ocean Defender online courses. Kids aged 7 to 10 become an Ocean Defender through interactive virtual lessons and hands-on activities. SeaSmart provides all the resources your kids need so you can work from home with ease. Even better, SeaSmart wants to support you with their Pay What You Can initiative. Visit SeaSmartSchool.com to register today. That's S-E-A, smartschool.com. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO. 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. Join us on Sunday at 4 p.m. for an online release of the documentary Medical Illusion, 
created by the local filmmaker Gary Charbonneau, who brought us the 2015 film Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered, and in a few minutes we will be interviewing him. Medical Illusion exposes the archaic and ineffective scientific research methods being performed on animals and encourages a transition to effective methods such as 3D printed organs, organs on chips, and personalized medicine. Following the film is a panel discussion with the filmmaker, animal rights lawyer Camille Labchak, Nathaniel Eskine-Smith, Member of Parliament, and Dr. Sharu Chandrasekhera, the founder of the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods at Windsor University, where they're pioneering the path to non-animal methods. You can find the film on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver, and a link to that Zoom event. Planted Expo takes place November 20th and 21st at the Vancouver Convention Center. Bring some empty bags and head on down for all the free samples. There will be many plant-based food and product vendors giving out all kinds of new products that you would love to get your hands on. Allison and I leave there every year with so many bags we can barely get to our cars. And you have to bring an empty stomach as well, don't forget. <laughs> That's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, also, Rich Roll, local natura- Rich Roll will be speaking and local naturopath and frequent Animal Voices guest Dr. Matthew Nagra, animal rights lawyer and also frequent guest uh, Anna Pippis, who we had on the show last week talking about her new cookbook, will be speaking. The best part of this event is the, the samples and all the speakers, so definitely check that out. You can go to plant plantedlife.com or on our Facebook page to get tickets. They're only about 20 bucks and it's a two-day event and hope to see you there. If you have an animal-friendly event that you'd like to have announced on the show, please send it to info at animalvoices.org or you can send us a message on our Facebook page at Animal Voices Vancouver. Thank you for those events. Our feature interview today is with local Vancouver-based filmmaker Gary Charbonneau. You may know him already from his groundbreaking documentary of 2015 entitled Vancouver Aquarium Uncovered. Well, he has been spending the last few years making his next film, and it's also a groundbreaking documentary that connects the dots and exposes the egregious failings of Canada's pharmaceutical testing and development industry to treat and cure major diseases. The process always requires animal testing before moving to human trials to be approved. And we learn in this documentary why this method is so archaic, dangerous, and holding back progress in a country with vast resources and access to emerging technology. The film is called The Medical Illusion, A Healthcare in Crisis, and it will be debuting on this Sunday, November the 14th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Zoom. Gary is here today to tell us more about the film and this week's premiere. Hello, Gary, and welcome back to the Animal Voices Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Gary, to give us an update about this film that weaves together not commonly known expository information about our drug testing system here in Canada. For any of our regular listeners, you may recall that we did an interview with Gary about the film in 2019. That interview conducted by Jen Dobell was so good. Um, props to you, Jen. You just happened to be here. And it should be listened to by all citizens, I believe. I And if you're listening to this show as a podcast right now, I will be attaching that podcast to the end of this show on animalvoices.org. Otherwise, you can find it in our archives at animalvoices.org from August 2nd, 2019. So Gary, I had a chance to preview the film and I'm so excited that something so explicative and significant as the contents in this movie is coming out for everyone to see. You did such an impeccable job in so thoroughly researching both facts and fiction about the Vancouver Aquarium 
him and exposing it to the public so that they could be informed of the realities of how organizations work that needlessly hurt animals in return for revenues and human entertainment. And now this film about the medical testing industry is another expose that everyone needs to see. I love that it focuses on Canada because I feel that our public is very ill-informed about how our drug development system works here in Canada. And once again, you've gone and done the tireless work to bring together such a wealth of information that is so clear once presented and Canadians can now be educated and make informed choices and hopefully play a leading role in our country's progress towards effective treatments for diseases. But to ask you both as an activist and a filmmaker, what personally brought you to make this film The Medical Illusion? Well, it's funny because my films find me. Um, it's like I always have these ideas to go and make a documentary, but somehow, some way, I'm doing something because somebody has said, you need to look into this. And this is what happened with the Vancouver Aquarium, and the same thing happened with this film. So, uh, somebody said, you need to research the animal testing area. And, and the disclaimer that I want to make right away for all your listeners is that if anyone is interested in watching the film on Sunday, I can assure you that there's no uh, harsh graphics, there's no cruelty, there's nothing, there's no images or videos of any of that sort because this is all facts-based. This is all about science and the failures of, of animal testing. And so I just wanted to let people know because, like me, it's, it's hard to watch those things sometimes and, well, pretty much all the time. So I've really focused on the science because it's what you had just been uh, saying is that a lot of Canadians don't realize how broken this system actually is and how it doesn't work. Um, the I came to the animal testing once again because somebody had said, look into this. I had some concerns about doing this film, even though it was so important to me, because when you talk about um, the animal testing industry, we're, we're all under the impression, or many of us are under the impression that it's, it's kind of working and that we're finding cures, we're finding effective treatments, and that there are always these discoveries, and it's always from animals. So um, I think a lot of Canadians, you know, such as myself, we're under the impression that animal testing is kind of working, but it's just cruel and inhumane. But what I found out is that it's, it's a horrific failure, and that we're not transitioning away from animal testing into human biological innovation so we can actually learn about the human body and actually cure and find effective diseases, uh, uh, cures uh, and effective treatments, I should say. And there was a few things that really shocked me, to be, uh, to be quite forward, is that I didn't realize that there's a 95% failure rate in human clinical trials. And what that means is that when a drug goes through a certain amount of testing through animals and that it passes through a certain amount of animals, then it goes to human clinical trials, and we have a 95% failure rate. And that's around the world. That's not just here in Canada. That's a very well-known fact that nobody disputes. So we have a 95% failure rate, which tells you right away that this doesn't work. And this has been going on for, for quite a long time. But what we don't discuss is that we believe that there's a 5% success rate. And that's, that's misleading as well, because the 95% that fail don't go to the market. The 5% that pass goes to the market, and we all know that Canadians die every single year from taking prescription drugs as prescribed by their doctor. And some of these drugs actually do more damage, and then you need other drugs to try to repair that damage, and some drugs are not effective. So when you think about it, 
you really have maybe a, a 98% failure rate. So, and then it gets worse from there. But we can talk. Excuse me, we can talk about that. Wow. Our co-host Jen has a question for you here, Gary. Hi, Gary. How are you? Good. So in delivering the facts explained in this film, you interviewed a large breadth of experts in the medical and drug fields, such as doctors, researchers, geneticists, biologists, and other scientists. And they each told a part of the story as a matter of fact, an expert opinion on the current process of how drugs are developed and approved in Canada and what's wrong with these processes. So to start, could you tell us specifically about some of the people you interviewed and what their specialties are? Uh, one of my most fascinating interviews with, um, was with Dr. Chandra Sekra at the Windsor University. And um, what I learned was about the duplicatability crisis. Now, what this is, is that when we hear about these discoveries that, that we see on the magazines and on TV and the radio and all of that, um, they've always usually been done in mice or chimps or some sort of animal, but it never really correlates to humans. But we don't hear that part of it. And what we also don't hear is the duplicatability problem. And what that is is that when, when somebody like a university gets a grant uh, to look into a certain area, they want to try to make that successful because they've just taken money from the government and they want to get more money and they also want to make sure that it works. And they have so much leeway that um, when, you're, when you're testing your idea on animals, for example, what I didn't realize and what is absolutely frightening, I actually was under the impression that you have a drug, you try it, you test on a certain amount of animals. If it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. It, that's not how the system is. If it doesn't, if it fails in an animal, you just switch the animal. And I didn't, I didn't know that. I said, well, you, what about all the failures? We don't, they don't care about that. They, they actually, they, they find the, the very right, the perfect animal to make sure that it actually passes. And that's frightening because you don't know how many animals it failed in. And this is where the duplicatability crisis comes in, is that there's such a high failure rate. And part of the reason is um, because you can test on a mouse, as an, uh, as an example. One week later, you can go back and test on that same mouse, and you're going to get a different result. And that's because, and this is what I learned from Dr. Chandrasekhar, is that anything that you do, to these animals, you'll get a different result most of the time. If you change the bedding, if you change the lighting, if somebody handles them differently uh, before testing, if there's music, um, if you bring in another animal, everything can change their chemistry, and this is why there's a, uh, you can't duplicate these things. So when you hear about all these discoveries and we think they're wonderful, nobody's, nobody's able to duplicate them. And when I looked further into this, there were... Um, two groups who tried to duplicate the same results and one group couldn't they couldn't do it and then they continued to contact that first group for very specific steps they still couldn't get the same results even though they're talking to each other they had to go to that lab and what they found out is every little minor detail can change an outcome and in this case here somebody was shaking the cells the other person was spinning it and that gave you different results Another time, they couldn't get the same results. They couldn't duplicate it because they were using a different cleaner for the test tubes. So what that tells us is that anytime they, they say we have this discovery, we know that it's not duplicatable, so it really has no value. 
Yeah, that's incredible. That see, that's the kind of information that everyone needs to know, and they're not going to get it un- unless they watch your film. Really, uh, you know, uh, and even the fact that um, just some notes that I had uh, picked out from the film. Apparently, there's a running joke among health researchers that everything has been cured. Dot 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 in mice. Um, testing on animals gives researchers a false sense of security and the treatment of major diseases haven't been improved upon in 30 years. Can you speak to us more about these messages? These are messages of science that should appeal to all people who earnestly just want to find cures for their diseases or the diseases of loved ones. When you compare like these, um, you know, these points that I just mentioned against actual science, what do people listening to this show, for example, what can their takeaways really be from that in knowing that um, this really doesn't work? It's not an answer to having diseases cured. There is no science. If there was science, we would have stopped animal testing years ago. We would have started transitioning away from it. What we're talking about is an embedded system with our government, our universities and our charities. It's worth multi-millions of dollars with contracts and jobs, uh, animals, uh, uh, animal products. Uh, cages, tools, all kinds of things. And so it's so embedded that it's just a system now. It's not about the science, because if we looked at the science, we would recognize that not only is it a failure, but how we how we come to finding out whether these will be effective cures and treatments, it, it doesn't. It, it, they're skipping all these steps, and they're trying to make it work. When you When you watch the film, you'll hear one doctor tell you that these scientists are making these animals sing and dance so that they can get the results that they want, then they publish it really quickly, and nobody nobody can duplicate it. And other people are taking this information that's wrong, and then they're spending more millions of dollars and time, and it's all wasted because it's not working. Really what we're doing and what we've been doing for a very long time is we want to learn about an elephant while we're looking at a cheetah, and that's the problem. And the reason why is because no one wants to um, test on humans the way we test on animals. But what Mm -hmm. people don't realize is we're not doing that today. We're testing on cells. We draw blood. We take a bit of skin tissue, uh, non-invasive, and then we run those through uh, a series of different innovations like organ on a chip, in vitro, computer modeling. We have 3D printing. And so where the future is and where the science is, is not looking at animals for um, a cure for you or for treatment for you, not even looking at your sibling. That's another powerful thing, another aha moment that I had in making this film and a lot of people are having is that looking at your own sibling, your parents, your brother, your sister, your children, even looking at their cells will not tell you what you should be taking. So the future is precision medicine. So the steps are we, we, we've been looking at animals. Animals have helped. No matter what anybody tells you, years and years ago, decades ago, we have learned a lot from animals. But we hit a wall at least 20 to 30 years ago where we, we, we have to now turn them into Franken animals because these animals are not giving us the results we want. So now we're, we're, we're creating animals that don't even exist to try to get uh, the outcomes that we want. And it's no longer science. And parents should be terrified because if your child gets cancer, it's still chemotherapy. We haven't advanced. We're being told the cures are around the corner. We, our cures and effective treatments for, for most cancers, ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, they're, they're over 50 years away. We're not even close, and Canadians don't know this. 
Everybody thinks that they're kind of there, that we're not even, we're decades away, and that's because we're still investing in animal testing instead of investing in the future, which is moving from animals and then testing on human cells, uh, non-invasively, as I said, and then specifically looking at your cells so that when you get a drug, when you get a medicine, it has been tested on your cells so that you know that it's going to be healthy for you and it's going to work for you. But we're not going to get there because our institutions are not transitioning fast enough. And, and even our charities don't even offer an option to donate to non-animal testing. So it, the whole system is quite far behind and Canadians and Canadians don't realize this. And I'm hoping that once they start to realize that the science is broken, the whole methodology is broken, and that our institutions need to start transferring away from investing in animal testing and into the future, I think change, change is going to happen. Well, Gary, can you tell us about the Parametric Human Project and what this is about? Well, that's just another thing that's really fascinating is that, so we have these, these professionals or so-called experts, and they're testing on, on, on a mouse as an example. And the Parametric uh, Human Project taught me that the size means a lot. You can't just um, scale, scale a pill, uh, uh, pill up or down for a mouse or for a human. When you're testing in a mouse, the, it is so small compared to a human that it can burn off through um, a drug, which means that there will be no toxic buildup. That's not going to happen in a human. It, it, the, it is so different in, uh, like I said, just the size alone is going to make a huge difference that we can't understand that from mice or from chimps or dogs or cats. That's why we really have to start looking at the human body and not just the human cells, but the actual functioning human body. And that's what they're doing. They're incorporating all of this. So um, the innovations and technologies are fascinating and they're for humans. But even all the, the advancements that are here today are grossly underfunded. And the things that should be here tomorrow are going to take 10, 20, 30 years because our institutions are not moving fast enough. So there's a lot of interesting places like this company that uh, have some very unique innovations. We just we need to fund them. And while you had numerous interviews in the film, which is great, you, did you reach out to other relevant organizations who are specifically involved in this topic who you'd think would want to be interviewed for the only documentary of this kind that's meant to serve the public, who they mean to serve, and, and what kind of response were you getting from them? Well, you would think that our government and our universities and charities would be interested. Not a single one wanted to talk to me. They all turned me down. And that's because once I started talking about human-based innovations, they shut down because they don't have them. Uh, they're turning down grants. I've, I've been speaking to scientists and researchers across Canada, and some of them are no, no longer even trying to apply for grants for human-based technologies because they're being turned down because the system is so outdated, the very people that are looking at these grants only really know about animal testing. And that's how the whole system is based on, is animal testing. So if you're forward-looking, you're not going to get grants. And when I contacted these, these organizations, they didn't even know they were turning down the grants. They said, we have no idea about that. And I said, that's why researchers are not even applying for new technologies anymore, because they're getting turned down. So... It's, um, they didn't want to talk to me because they very well know that they're outdated and they're embarrassed. And just to clarify, some of these governmental organizations and charity, they included Health Canada, the Canadian Council on Animal Care, and the Canadian Cancer Foundation. Is that correct, Gary? All of them, the Parkinson's, ALS, Alzheimer's, universities, nobody wanted to talk to me. Wow. 
But we have a great film still. So finally, uh, the film debut date is coming up soon. It's finally popped upon us. We've been waiting a long time. It's this Sunday, November the 14th. Can you please tell us uh, more and tell our listeners and ha- how people can empower themselves in this knowledge by seeing the film? So we have the premiere this weekend. Please tell us about that. And tell us about the live guests who you will have on the, at the end of the film screening as well. Well, it's um, well for me. It's fascinating because um, this journey I didn't expect. Uh, as I said, I, I, when I came into this uh, uh, documentary, I really thought something different. I didn't realize it was so broken and that it just simply doesn't work. And and as I said, this has nothing to do with ethics. It has nothing to do with moralism. It's a scientific failure. And this is what um, Canadians need to hear. Uh, they need to hear the other side of it, um, and that. They're wasting their donor and tax money. Um, they're, what they need, to, what Canadians need to do, because people ask me this question, is what can we do? Um, first of all, it's your tax money. So you have to talk to your politicians. And that's what you always hear, but it's unfortunate. That's what the answer is as far as the government, is that we have to talk to our politicians and say, we don't want our money going to animal testing anymore. Um, but for me personally, after doing this, I think where we could possibly get the quickest change is with charities, not universities, not with government, but with charities. And that's because they listen to their donors and you control your donation. We don't really control our taxes, but we can control our our donations. And what I thought about is that, and it's unfortunate that there isn't a single president for these charities that doesn't understand that they can make history. They can be the vanguards, but they're not. What ends up happening is, and, and, and people ask this other question as well, well, how come we, we continue to get presidents that continue the same old? Because they're not going to hire somebody that's going to change the whole system around and, and, and turn everything upside down. Uh, that's what really needs to happen, but that's not with who they look for. They look for presidents who have uh, experience with animal testing and, and running the very same system that's operating right now. That's why there isn't very much change. But... The thing about charities is that if you can imagine uh, a whole bunch of Canadians contacting the Canadian uh, Cancer Foundation or Alzheimer's or whatever and saying, we're going to hold off our donations until you give us an option to donate into, into future technologies. And then you'll force a charity to actually change their, their uh, path and start minimizing their investments to animal testing because they'll be forced to, and then they're going to have to go into the future. And since they're going to be the only institution in Canada doing that, they're the ones, uh, besides CCAM, which is uh, Dr. Chadu Chandrasekhar, but as far as charities are concerned, um, they're the ones that can find the discoveries. They're the ones that are going to be uh, making headway and learning so much quicker than everybody else because they're looking at human biological innovations and not monkeys or chimps or fish. And then the universities, the other charities, and the government will have no choice but to catch up because they're going to be embarrassingly behind. So I think the, the biggest change is, is controlling your, your donor dollars. And, um, and, and then you have, as I said, CCAM, Dr. Chaturchandra Sekra, who's making some great advancements and will be offering programs for students. So we're seeing, we're seeing some people really step up, but the rest of Canada's really have, they have to have their voices heard. 
Thank you, Vancouver filmmaker Gary Charbonneau, for joining us on the show today to tell us about your latest work to advocate for animals. You can see The Medical Illusion, a healthcare in crisis on Zoom this Sunday, November the 14th, with a link at themedicalillusion.com. You can also find that link on our Facebook page, Animal Voices Vancouver. Very quickly, Gary, how can people see the film after the premiere if they can't make the live premiere? It'll be online for free at themedicalillusion.com. They can watch it anytime after Sunday. And making that free is really making it accessible out there for everyone to see. Thank you for doing that too. That's a real service to our humanity and our nation. Thank you, Gary. Until next time, happy World Vegan Month. Thanks for all the work you do. Thank you very much for having me. So you are listening to the Animal Voices radio show on 100.5 FM, Vancouver Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam and Squamish territories in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Tune in next week on Friday, November the 19th from noon till 1 p.m. Grace is producing next week's show and will be hosting an interview with local activist Jazz Joyce to speak about a new vegan outreach group in Vancouver. They are starting called we the free we here at the animal voices show modestly ask you to keep connected with animal voices via the world wide web our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org our past podcasts are also available on apple podcasts and google play and you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show join our facebook page and join us on instagram both at animal voices vancouver and if you want to get in touch let us know how we're doing or send along show segment ideas. You can send us a note on Facebook or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. I'm grateful for all the interview suggestions we've been receiving lately. I can only go through so many at once, but I will get back to you if we can have you on the show. There's so many great ideas there. We're also on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. We need help here at Animal Voices. We are an all-volunteer-run radio station and podcast covering animal advocacy issues. If you are tech-savvy and know your way around editing audio, WordPress, or social media, please contact us at info at animalvoices.org if you would like to be part of the show. We also need people who know about animal advocacy issues or are willing to learn to be co-hosts on the show. Be a part of the animal advocacy community by lending a hand or your voice for the animals to close the show today we are playing a beautiful song called vivas sectio by louis dutois on the theme of vivisection of animals in unnecessary cruel and ineffective testing stay tuned next for radio ecoshock with alex smith thank you so much for listening to animal voices today and remember to be kind to the animals Day. I don't recall those years I've shed too many tears The memories got lost in all my fears I feel the burning flames The scientific games I hate it when they tie me up in chains My heart's still burning strong 
this pain, this hurt, this torture me so hard. And yet another human still loves me in a cage. I become the victim of his horror and his rage. The only thing that keeps me sane is when I have faith that in the light of hope someday I will be saved. Besides the clue 